If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. Facts of Assertions. From the Institute of Art and Ideas. We examine every aspect of contemporary thinking. What is love? Is it real? Is democracy illusory and incoherent? Finding cracks in the way we understand the world. I think there is a crisis of values. Realism has failed. We debate the way forward with today's leading thinkers. We're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. A live podcast production from the Institute of Art and Ideas. Sophie Walker from the Women's Equality Party. I've been asked to talk about whether radical thinking can change society. There are many things that have come as a surprise to me over the last year, not least becoming leader of a political party. I put my hand up for the first meeting thinking I would be putting the chairs out. Even compared to that, the idea that women's equality is still a radical proposition is incredibly surprising to me. We created the Women's Equality Party because we wanted to do something about the glacial pace of change. We started from an understanding that the old parties were hampered by competing priorities and that equality for women had fallen off the to-do list. We never imagined that it would have fallen out of their value structures or out of their visions for society. Just as working class was all but erased from the 1945 Labour Party manifesto so that that party could appeal to the whole nation as a party for all people, so women's equality has been annexed to a political footnote, a women's manifesto, a low-grade ministerial portfolio or a pink bus. It has not survived the evolution of the catch-all party. It remains in rhetoric, of course, the aims and the values of the Conservative Party include a commitment to support the choices that women make about their work and home lives and not impose choices on them. But this shows how far the idea of women's equality has been abstracted from notions of political and economic power, from the structural context that drives these inequalities in the first place. The political voice of women's collective demands has weakened as mainstream parties have positioned themselves around blueprints for an entire social system. Women's interests are conflated with the masses rather than empowering us to be participants in our own destiny. We face the choice right now of being other or homogenous humans as defined by centuries of male thought 
and experience. The EU referendum is a perfect example. Women's voices and interests have been non-existent on both sides of the debate. Only 16% of TV appearances have been by women. Women for In and Women for Britain both launched on International Women's Day. But neither has made much impact at all in connecting women to the referendum campaign. Compare this to the Women for Independence campaign in Scotland. That absolutely reinvigorated women's involvement in politics. It engaged women from the ground up. But now we are three weeks away from the EU vote and so a wearyingly familiar response must now kick in as it does at this point in every election. Women's unwillingness to confirm to the YouGov operator how they intend to vote on a national dialogue that has all but forgotten them will start sending those same alarm bells ringing. Concerns about women might just swing it will propel politicians and the media into a state of panic. Our office phone is ringing off the hook. And so what are the political parties doing? They are pushing out statements designed to appeal to women. That special interest group from whom they are so disconnected and yet in whom they retain an unshaken understanding that we will only ever vote according to positions on safety and healthcare. They switch out the regular neoliberal narrative in which everyone is promised the freedom of individual economic empowerment for groupthink while having no understanding of that group and no relationship with that group because they've broken down that group in an attempt to appeal to the masses. So there is no longer a collective democratic feminism with which to engage. And don't get me wrong, there are plenty of people who support the idea of women's equality. And there are hundreds of brilliant organisations that fight for it every single day. But the annexing of such organisations into the direct service of the state, whereby civil society replaces service provision and social care, and consequently depends on the state for sustainable funding, has reduced those organisations' capacity to act politically. It's in this context where arguments for women's equality have been reduced to tokenistic benchmarks that ideas around restructuring family and work once again seem radical. The idea that violence against women and girls is a structural inequality perpetrated by men against women based on their gender seems radical. But these ideas are not as radical as you might think. They are rooted in the lived experiences of women. In our recent London election campaign, when we developed our manifesto for transport in that city, we looked at the issue of accessibility. And in examining the prized route master bus, we realised that, in fact, it was a metaphor for my mayoral campaign. On London's buses, wheelchair users and people with pushchairs have to compete against each other for about this much space per bus. So mums with babies are left waiting in the rain as the buses pass, because there's already a pushchair on that one. Some wheelchair users have given up trying to use buses as a reliable means of moving around the city. And yet, until now, the idea that we might consider making enough space for both groups has simply not been considered. Equality is seen as a zero-sum game. If we give a bit of equality to that group, 
we have to take it from that group over there. Our response was to say, let's design a better bus. When we can all use the bus, the public transport system does the job it's supposed to do. People cut down on car journeys, air pollution falls. Equality is better for everyone. Take childcare as another example. Across the country, what percentage of men do you think are taking their paternity leave? 1%. The sky-high costs of childcare, combined with a 20% pay gap across the country, means the sensible decision for many, the only decision, is nearly always going to be that the woman does the caring. And increasingly, that means caring for older relatives as well as for young children, for your parents or your husband's parents. So women are dropping out of the workplace and men are dropping out of their families. It is a system that works well for no one. Let's take a closer look at what's going on in, in our economy. Right now, our economy does not work for women. And that is a problem because women make up half the population. And by barring women from the workplace, by discriminating against us, by creating occupational segregation, so that the jobs we are allowed to do pay less and are held in lower regard, we are limiting our country's potential for economic growth. We are limiting the diversity of businesses. We are limiting their ability to tap a diverse range of talents. We are trapping so many women at home, unable to work. In a report last year, the McKinsey Global Institute found that advancing women's equality could add $12 trillion to global GDP by 2025. And yet the old-fashioned political parties continue with their old-fashioned approach. The last budget announcement is a case in point. In the face of a growing national debt and economic instability, the government continues to prioritise investment in infrastructure, construction, men's jobs, while jobs in the public sector, women's jobs, are seen as expenses to be cut. The result? To drive women into greater dependency on government services and benefits, and so the circle turns. Meanwhile, the media continues to show us its version of the world. The media is at the heart of our culture. It has a profound effect on the way women and girls perceive themselves and how they perceive the world around them. Where is the equality here? In the UK, we have grown used to print and broadcast journalism that sidelines women, that sexualises women, that is reliant on a male-centric news agenda from which women are largely excluded. We are used to watching TV content that contains a limited and limiting number of roles for women. You all know them. There's the put-upon mum. There's the token BME or disabled character. There's the single woman who's usually pursuing a career and has an alcoholic habit. Or there's the murder victim. Because if you're a woman, you all know that your lives as portrayed in TV are generally most likely to be fodder for serial killers. On top of all this, we are used to seeing sport as an arena in which women simply don't compete. We are used to fashion and beauty photography that shows women with an unhealthy BMI. All of this limits women. 
But just as importantly, it also stereotypes men in ways that hold them back too. This everywhere character, for example, of the bumbling dad, it's just as insidiously harmful. Equality would be better for everyone. Violence against women and girls is one of the most important examples of the damage that is done by this structural inequality. For it is a structural violence that is largely perpetrated by men against women on the basis of their gender. And as long as women live with the fear of violence, none of us are free. And yet the justice system's failure to understand this means that instances of harassment, abuse and violence, they are all increasing, while prosecution rates remain the same. The government's failure to understand this means that specialist support services are being closed down in favour of gender-neutral, generic service providers. A gender-neutral approach does not deal with the perpetrator and it does not support the specific needs of the victim, whoever they are. And a gender-neutral approach to politics inflicts the same damage. The word radical stems from the Latin term radicalis of or having roots. A better term for the Women's Equality Party might be radicant. Radicant refers to those plants that instead of anchoring themselves deep underground to compete with other plants, take root above ground and spread across as wide an area as possible. It means setting one's roots in motion. Because what is radical about our thinking is the way we think. We know that if we want to achieve women's equality, then it has to be inextricably linked to a radicant process of democratic renewal. We have to politicise the women's movement so that women can raise their involvement in the political life of our country again. Radical thinking alone will not change society. Radicant action will. So that is why we decided to build a new kind of political party a collaborative, inclusive party with a clear set of aims. This is no small task. Political parties have never been as unpopular as they are now. In the 1950s, one in 10 people was a member of a political party. Today, there are more people who define their religion as Jedi than members of the Conservative Party. There are many reasons for this, but they are, in part, a consequence of this catch-all approach to party politics. Citizens have more access to political information than ever before, reducing the role of parties as political communicators. Weakening social ties and class structures have reduced engagement and made way for a market-based approach to individual participation. Increasing reliance on big donors has reduced the influence that members hold and the impact is clear. People no longer strongly identify with a single political party. 
They identify with ideas. And they want to support a wider range of smaller parties that reflect their preferences. Regional elections show that pattern really clearly. Our first election outing in the early months of this year, we stood in Scotland and in Wales and in London. The experience of talking to voters during that election campaign about how they could use their vote creatively to support women's equality, as well as other ideas, well, it was thrilling for us as a party and for the voters. And the numbers backed up our canvassing experiences. We went out 10 months after we opened our doors for membership and we gained more than 350,000 votes and one in 20 of every vote for the Mayor of London. People want parties to open up more, to give them a far bigger role. Action groups like 38 Degrees, online petitions, social media campaigns, they can all articulate our interests without having to aggregate them. And for many of us, this feels more like we're being listened to. Research from the Electoral Reform Society concludes that people ultimately want parties to be more consensual, to work together. But they also want them to be distinctive in terms of policy and ideology. And the older parties are finding this tightrope too difficult to walk. The Women's Equality Party was created a year ago by Sandy Toxvig and Catherine Mayer to walk that tightrope. Following another general election from which women had been forgotten, many of us realised that if we wanted to see change, we had to get out there and be it. We had to become a political force. Just as the Greens and UKIP have shown, the currency of votes has a power to it. But we wanted to do things differently. We knew that our success relied on us building as broad a movement as possible, and that rather than dividing to conquer, we needed to unite. So we decided to build a non-partisan political party. I think that's a first. <laughs> Challenging the idea of tribal politics, we opened our doors to people from right across the political spectrum, we offer joint membership because women's equality is not a single issue. Women are not a special interest group. And because we needed to exert pressure on all the political parties to make lasting change. And so at every step of this journey, we have dared to ask ourselves if we are doing this because that's how it's always been done or because that's how it should be done. We wanted to build a political movement rather than just a political party. So we crowdsourced our policies with experts, with volunteers, in cafes and in kitchens up and down the country. And we engaged skilled volunteers in setting up the party, creating everything from our logo to our events. We had to build a different kind of funding model we don't have the multi-millionaire backers that the Conservatives have. We don't have the Labour Party's unions. So we had to be creative. We built a crowdfunding campaign called WeBay, so that supporters on low incomes could sell off the things they no longer wanted to raise money for the party. And recently, artists such as the Chapman Brothers and Damien Hirst supported us by donating artworks. 
We wanted to field different kinds of candidates. We wanted to attract people from all walks of life to represent the party in the forthcoming elections. So we took out the psychometric testing <laughs> from the application process. We made it an entirely open application process. We offered bursaries to those on low incomes and we provided childcare for candidates. The result was a diverse list of inspirational women, the vast majority of whom had never been involved in politics before. We also wanted to build a different kind of media campaign. We don't have the media access that the other political parties do. So we had to innovate. We built campaigns on digital platforms and on social media. Our We Count campaign supports women to geomap and reclaim sites and locations via social media where they experienced unwanted sexual attention. To say that they count, to make their mark. We are already making a mark. The groundswell of support that we have seen since we established the party a year ago has been phenomenal. We have 45,000 members and registered supporters. We have 73 branches across Scotland, England and Wales. When the government threatened to remove feminism from the A-level syllabus, there was uproar. There were 100,000 signatures on change.org. There was also a political party you could vote for if you were upset about it. I went directly to talk to the Minister for Education with all of those brilliant people, all of those brilliant campaigners, all of those votes behind me and the government did a U-turn because votes matter. The day we kicked off our campaign in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon announced an expanded childcare programme because votes matter. At one of the mayoral hustings I attended in London, I had the peculiar experience of hearing Sadiq Khan make to that audience exactly the same speech that I had given at the previous hustings. Because votes matter. Across the country, we have seen the old parties fighting to regain ownership of women's equality. And every time they use our lines in their manifesto speeches, every time they pinch our policies for their manifestos, every time they decry violence against women in the media, we celebrate. And then we raise the bar. Our strategy is very straightforward. It is to win seats and to win influence and in so doing, to put women's equality where it belongs, at the top of the agenda. But our strategy also means changing what political parties look like. Our non-partisan membership structure is much less formal and it allows us to build the broadest movement possible for women's equality. Our approach to social media allows us to deviate from the national media lens and the box ticking of political communications 
to connect with people directly. Our startup approach empowers a wider network of members to participate in the development of the party, in the development of our policies, in the development of our campaigns. And our grassroots approach to fundraising frees us from the shackles of special interests. But most importantly, our strategy means that we can found our movement in an understanding of the different ways in which women from different backgrounds are oppressed and build agreement about the common good that we are working towards. We can develop new strategies to organise, educate and agitate for our collective demands. Because future generations are not going to ask us, what political party were you in? They are going to ask, once you understood that women were being systematically discriminated against, what did you do about it? Our radical thought, make that radicant thought, is that diversity is power. And if you want a system that appreciates and embraces diversity, you have to get out there and build it. If you don't make the changes you want to see, then you can't expect change to happen. But if you do make those changes, then wonderful things can happen. And there's another radical thing. A politician describing the process of politics as wonderful. It's about time. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. If you want to listen to more episodes, then subscribe to the Philosophy for Our Times podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher for more big ideas on the go. We always love to hear feedback, so please email us on podcast at iai.tv.